Hello, my name is Isaac Keith Martinez, and welcome to Isaac's Haunted Beard. Today we're going to talk about the film Batman and Robin from the year 1997. This is the fourth and final film in the original Batman franchise, which included Batman, Batman Returns, and Batman Forever. It's been my observation that this is the least appreciated film in the franchise, and I'd go so far as to say a hated movie. <laughs> a movie that a lot of you are probably wondering, why would I devote an episode to Batman and Robin? Well, I recently revisited this movie because I do wacky stuff like that. <laughs> watch, watch stuff like Batman and Robin. And I found myself thinking, this ain't so bad. Why does this movie have such a nasty reputation? Why do people hate this movie so much? So I decided to do a podcast episode about it. Now, normally when I do podcast episodes, my goal is to get you to watch the film. If you haven't seen it already, I do think a lot of you have seen this movie and have already passed judgment on it. And for those of you who haven't seen it, I feel like you've already made up your mind that you're never going to watch it, which makes me wonder why you're still listening. Uh, maybe you just like spending time with your, <laughs> with your old haunted pal. And maybe you're just curious, like, how am I going to approach talking about this movie? Okay, so here's my actual goal. My goal is just to kind of explain myself and to explain why I feel this movie is kind of fun. And I hope that if I can achieve anything today, it's that at the very least, you can admit that it's not as bad as you originally thought it was. So <laughs> like we usually do in these episodes, let's start by talking about the plot. Gotham is currently dealing with a villain named Mr. Freeze. Mr. Freeze freezes people and things with his freeze gun, and he likes to steal diamonds. Mr. Freeze, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, used to be Dr. Victor Freeze, a scientist working to develop a cure for McGregor's syndrome, hoping to heal his wife, who's got it. Victor Freeze manages to survive a lab accident that almost killed him, but can no longer survive in normal temperatures. So he lives his life in a cryogenic suit powered by diamonds. Like the previous two Batman films before this, this movie's got two villains. The other, played by Uma Thurman, is Poison Ivy. Poison Ivy used to be a mild-mannered botanist, but after discovering her boss was evil <laughs> and uses an experimental drug called Venom to create a huge monster of a killer he calls Bane, her boss tries to kill her with various toxins, but these toxins transforms her into Poison Ivy, a seductive killer who can kill people by kissing them 
with her poisonous lips. In the private life of Bruce Wayne and his partner in crime fighting, Robin, they are joined for the summer by Alfred's niece, Barbara, played by Alicia Silverstone. Barbara is secretly raising money to help her uncle Alfred, who is dying from McGregor syndrome. McGregor syndrome, as we mentioned earlier, is the same disease that Dr. Victor Freeze was developing a cure for. So, you know, these two storylines do come together later on in the film. All the while, friction arises between Batman and Robin when Robin is seduced by Poison Ivy and is falling in love with her. So, you know, that's more or less <laughs> the plot. Um, this is the second Batman film to be directed by Joel Schumacher. And the first and only time that Batman slash Bruce Wayne has been played by George Clooney, who I actually really like. And I have to admit that a large part of my attraction to George Clooney's acting is um, being a fanboy for the film From Dusk Till Dawn, which he's the star of. Um, when this movie first came out, I didn't want to see it. I saw the commercial on TV and, you know, maybe I saw the trailer in the theater and decided, no, it doesn't look like it's for me. Um, I had previously seen the three Batman films that came out before this in the theater um, at that time. And I guess, yeah, still to this day, at least as far as this version of the Batman franchise is concerned, I preferred the original 1989 Batman and its sequel, Batman Returns, and didn't really, at the time at least, like Batman Forever. Um, I guess I was so into Tim Burton's approach to telling the story and the whole look of the Batman, you know, world that he he created that when it changed, I, I didn't really change with it, and I probably rejected the idea of changing actors to play Bruce Wayne. Since then, I've kind of changed my mind on Batman Forever. It's, I, I don't like, really, really like Batman Forever. Like, I, I think it's okay. Um, I certainly like it more than I did back then. I, I have lightened up on it. And I can appreciate Joel Schumacher's um, more brightly colorful approach to um, Gotham versus Tim Burton's very dark, gothic-looking version of Gotham. Um, but I don't love it, and I still like the first two Batman movies better. But I do like Batman and Robin, the movie we're talking about right now, more than Batman Forever. Now, of course, I did eventually see Batman and Robin, and it's not this recent time that I watched it. Um, I did watch it closer to when it came out. Uh, gee, maybe that's not entirely true. It came out in the mid-90s. I think I finally got around to watching it either in the late 90s or early aughts. I'm not sure. But... Um, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Batman Forever. Batman and Robin came out in the late 90s, 97 to, to be exact. And I, I didn't see it until probably the later 90s. 
There's only a couple, couple of years left in that decade or the early aughts. And that was a friend of mine who, who actually liked it. And he thought I was being unfair to it. And he thought there was potential for me to like it. And I asked him, well, what do you see in it? Like, why do you like it? And he said something that I could respect. He said, um, I like the look of the movie. It, it looks and feels like the way the comic book looks. Now, you tell me if he's right, because I don't read comics. And for all I know, you, you read comics and you're like, he's very wrong. <laughs> Is he though? I mean, that's his opinion. That's the way he interpreted it. That's the way it made him feel. Um, but as I've mentioned in other podcast episodes, I don't read comics. So when I watch comic book movies, I just judge them as, as movies. You know, I don't compare them to any source material. But he appreciated that this movie reminded him of something he was familiar with, something he was a fan of. And I appreciated that he had put thought into it and that this was his genuine response to the movie and it made him feel good. And it was new to me that I had come across someone who liked it. So I thought this was enough to give it a chance, especially considering that I had previously enjoyed Batman movies. So I remember that I ended up feeling at the time that it wasn't that bad. I think that's about as much as I could give it. I didn't love it, nor do I love it now. Love's a big word, right? But um, I, I at least didn't hate it. I think that was the biggest takeaway was that it wasn't, it wasn't that bad as, as, as opposed to now, where actually I do think it's good. I think there's something, there's a way to enjoy it. Um, I have noticed, just kind of speaking you know, about the Batman, this particular Batman franchise, that generationally, the four films seem to be appreciated generationally um, by two the two different generations. Like, if you cut that franchise directly in half uh, between the first two films and the second two films. So, and the generations I'm speaking of would be Generation X and Millennials. Now, I'm no expert, <laughs> so if I get this wrong, please forgive me. Uh, like I said, this is just my observation. This is things that I've seen and I've noticed. Maybe you've noticed something different. I can't argue with you there. But what I've noticed is that uh, Generation X is very fond of Batman and Batman Returns, the first two films. And uh, millennials tend to be... I will at least say sometimes more forgiving or, and even sometimes legit fans of the second two films, but especially Batman forever. And uh, I am guessing a lot of that has to do with the age difference and that uh, they were kids when Batman forever came out. So they have a very nostalgic um, relationship with Batman forever and, and maybe even Batman and Robin as were Gen X at the time would have been like, you know, preteens and teenagers for those uh, first two Batman films. So 
um, by the time the next two Batman films came out, maybe they were loose, unless they were, you know, legit Batman fans or, or comic book fans. Um, they had kind of like moved away from the character because uh, at the time, as you remember, those first two films had this crossover appeal and people who may not read comics or didn't care about it went to see it anyway because it was very popular. It had a lot of hype, so everybody went to go see it. And the proof was in the numbers. The movies were very successful. Um, I personally, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, prefer those first two Batman films to the second two. But um, like I said, I've since come around to seeing uh, an appreciation for those second two films. And I feel like they kind of, maybe they weren't meant to do this, but they kind of feel like they represent their time, you know? Um, granted, Bruce Wayne's supposed to be this kind of dark, brooding character, um, so it's supposed to be reflected in the movies, but I still feel like Batman was a product of its time, and Tim Burton's approach to it was a product of its time, and its time being the er you know late 80s, early 90s, I feel like, you know, um, I guess I'm thinking about music like grunge <laughs> started to be a big thing, which was really moody. And um, I think that kind of translates to a darker Batman. And then I think by the later 90s, I think about the late 90s in, in music, I think about what was popular at the time. And it was like things like the Backstreet Boys and <laughs> Spice Girls and stuff. I feel like things got more colorful and more bright. And that kind of matches the second two Batman films. So that was like the first two are like a product of the early 90s and the second two are a product of the late 90s. But that's just, just how I interpret it. You know, I'm not saying that was by design. It's A, a coincidence, <laughs> and B, that's just one person's interpretation of it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not precious about Batman. I don't read the books. And... Um, you know, I don't consider myself a huge fan. Um, I like it, but I'm not a huge fan of the franchise. So um, I think that helps me be able to kind of get over myself and finally find an appreciation for Batman Returns. Um, <laughs> excuse me, Batman and Robin. My brain's all over the place today. Um, I like that it has a sense of humor, as were the previous, the first two films at least, were more serious uh batman and robin is kind of a funny movie and it's campy and it's definitely campy by design and i think it accomplishes that um i think it's got an amazing artistic achievement with its incredible sets it's really really big and there's a lot to look at and there's moments where the camera pulls back and you just there's so much to take in visually and there's a lot of beautiful colors, and there's a lot of wonderful costumes in this movie. Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy especially have really incredible costumes and really incredible makeup. Both of them. I mean, Poison Ivy, of course, you know, being a woman, there's a lot of neat makeup with her eyes especially. And Mr. Freeze just being kind of like a, his whole skin looks like it's silver and diamond-like. 
so he's got makeup as well and they just they both look really neat um the performances of mr freeze and poison ivy by arnold schwarzenegger and uma thurman are, are terrific arnie has all these like cheesy lines that he has to deliver and you all know how Ar arnold talks and up until this movie he's made an entire career out of delivering <laughs> cheesy lines in his action films so I feel like those lines would have sounded or could have sounded worse coming out of somebody else's mouth. He makes it work for him. And then as a fan, as a, as a fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger, there's a little bit of a glee that I feel when I hear him speak those type of super cheesy lines. And Uma's character is super campy and she really gets it. Like she totally understands the character and she really hams it up. I think her her performance is, is great. Now, on the exact opposite uh, end of that, where you have Arnold Schwarzenegger and Uma Thurman giving these really over-the-top performances, you have George Clooney playing Bruce Wayne and Batman, and he's kind of underperforming it. Now, people hate George Clooney's Batman. I get it. Bruce Wayne is supposed to be dark and brooding and you get that from Michael Keaton and you get that from Val Kilmer and you don't get that from George Clooney. But like I said, I'm not precious about Batman or his canon, so I don't really care that he's supposed to be dark. I'm just judging it as a movie and I'm judging it as a movie within the context of this particular franchise. And to me, telling the story through the first three films that I already sat through leading up to this one, to me, it kind of makes sense that George Clooney would, or Bruce Wayne would have lightened up by now and start to feel some sense of happiness. And he's not like super happy, but he's not, he's not dark and brooding. And George Clooney is playing a lighter, Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is a billionaire. And although I really love Michael Keaton and Val Kilmer, I actually do think that George Clooney really fits what I think of when I think of a handsome, uh, charismatic billionaire, someone who looks and feels and, and really gives off the energy of someone who is who is wealthy. Now, I'd like to talk about some thoughts that I've had while watching this movie. Some of them kind of silly. Now, there's a recurring thing, not, not just in this movie, but especially like in action movies. There's this like um, tradition <laughs> where you see the hero suit up and when they do that, they're putting on all their armor and they're putting on their costume. There seems to be this thing <laughs> where the camera will zoom in really quickly on just one part of the character's body. You know, if they're putting on a belt, it'll like zoom in on the waist or it might zoom in on the chest. If like, let's say some bullets or something like think about commando, you know, Commando is a good example of that. There's a great suiting up sequence where Commando's like 
putting all these like weapons on his, you know, on his body. And the same with Batman, you know, Batman's got a utility belt, Batman's got a costume, and you have the moment where Batman and Robin suit up, put on their costumes, and they, they'll like quickly, you know, zoom in and edit it. So you, you see this part of the costume and then that part of the costume, and then you see, you know, the hands, and then you see the, the belt and you see the chest and, and Joel Schumacher always makes it a point to show the butt. It will kind of <laughs> take you out of it. I think it's meant to. You're like, eh, this doesn't feel like something that should be in a Batman film. But I also think <laughs> that it's cool. It's memorable. It makes you go, wait a minute, are we looking at Batman and Robin's butt cheeks? Through the costume, of course. And um, I think it helps establish the the style of this movie, that this is a Batman movie that doesn't take itself too seriously. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm up for the bat butt. All right, now it's no secret that Barbara, the character played by Alicia Silverstone, becomes Batgirl because in, she's in the poster, right? And uh, they even show her in the trailer, you know, I'm Batgirl. <laughs> so what I'm, the, what this leads to is, and I know the answer to my own question, but I'll just ask the question anyway. Uh, is, this, is this just a crazy coincidence that Barbara can fight? Because, um, like, how? How would she be? I mean, there must be an answer, you know? There must be some backstory of Barbara learning how to fight. And I guess it's not important to show that or to teach the viewer how she trained to fight. But it is surely um, <laughs> convenient that she can fight. And it's one thing to be able to fight, but it's another thing entirely to um, have the um, <laughs> ability to fight as good as Batman and Robin. Like with Robin, I kind of get it. They show the whole, you know, Batman Forever. They show the whole background of him being like a trapeze artist and all that stuff because his family worked in the circus. So that's how he can do all this like ac acrobatic type, type stuff. But um, which, you know, then translated into like it crossed over into his fighting style and stuff. But like Barbara just like naturally knew how to fight. And not only that, just like she's fearless. Like she can just not be scared to take on these like super villains. So... I mean, I know I'm nitpicking it, but I, I'm also just kind of like having fun noticing stuff like that. Like, what are the chances that this girl would be able to fight good enough to join the crime fighting team of Batman and Robin? Okay, so this next this next observation is kind of kind of silly, <laughs> but we're talking about a silly movie, so you know it's all good. I feel like George Clooney should have grown his hair out for this movie. He has very short hair and Robin has very short hair. But um, yeah, I just feel like it makes him look the same and that I feel like Bruce Wayne should have a little longer hair and that it would um, differentiate the look between Bruce Wayne and, and Dick, is it Dick Grayson that plays, you know, the Robin's real name? Anyway, I kind of feel like I know the answer. I feel like the answer was like, I know that George Clooney was filming ER at the time and his character on ER had that hair. So I guess that's why 
he had the short hair. I just feel like when I'm watching Batman and Robin, I don't really think about ER. I'm just thinking that Batman and Robin have the same hair haircut, and it just looks kind of stupid. Now, like Batman and Forever, Arkham, Arkham, <laughs> Arkham, Arkham Asylum. Arkham Asylum's in it, and it looks very gothic. And as a horror movie fan, I really love the way Arkham Asylum looks. And like, if I if 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 I was watching a movie, and all the uh, shots of Arkham Asylum from the outside, which they show at night, if that was in Batman Robin, if that was in a horror film, I'd be I would be thinking, wow, this is a really really creepy asylum. I love it. So I just wanted to. <laughs> give a a little shout out to the Arkham Asylum. Uh, I was thinking about how, like, could you imagine how excited Alicia Silverstone was to join this franchise, this very popular beloved franchise, only to not have it continue? Like, she must have felt like on top of the world for like a year telling everyone, I'm Batgirl. That means I'm going to be Batgirl every time they make another Batman film, they're going to have Batman and Robin and Batgirl, and I'm going to be Batgirl. And she never got to be Batgirl again. Poor thing. (laughs) There was supposed to be another film. The next film in the franchise was to be called Batman Unchained, with the main villain to have been the Scarecrow. All the villains from the previous films were going to make cameos, through the hallucinations caused by the Scarecrow's fear toxin. The Scarecrow was to be played by Coolio, of all people. (laughs) And Harlequin was to be introduced in this film as well, written as the Joker's daughter. As we know, that movie didn't happen. But when they chose to reboot the franchise, instead of making another sequel... They did, of course, as you know, in that first film in the new trilogy, Batman Begins, have the Scarecrow be the villain. Um, This film was canceled after the film failed to be a huge success, which makes me wonder how much money did it have to make to be successful enough to greenlight that sequel? It made $107 million in America and a worldwide total of $238 million. And to me, that sounds like a lot of money, especially $1,997. But it didn't crack the top 10 of the global releases for that year, but it did crack the top 10 for American releases at number 9. So, I don't know. To me, it sounds like it still made a lot of money. I don't know. So, the last thing I want to mention is I'd like to talk about the concept of cult classics where a movie has a loyal following of fans and through word of mouth it gains um, more viewers, you know? And typically cult classics, not that I need to teach you what that is, but I just want to remind you that cult cult classics are typically low-budget films and usually genre films uh, or weird, you know, weird films. And it's very rarely that a big budget movie becomes a cult classic. But I think that Batman and Robin could be a cult classic. I think that it could be because it failed. It's a big budget movie, but it's considered one of the worst comic book films in history. It didn't make the money they wanted it to make. 
so therefore it's considered a failure. It killed off that version of the franchise. But I think there are there is a possibility for people to revisit the movie and fall in love with it for its over-the-top, campy performances and you know ridiculous dialogue and crazy costumes and neat makeup and awesome sets and just really silly, fun, zany, you know, adventure. And I think it's much better than I remember it being. And I can picture watching it again and again and having fun every time I watch it. And I think other people could. And I think if this sounds like something that appeals to you, maybe you might want to give it a chance. And who knows, maybe over time, it will develop its own cult following. Thank you for spending time with me. Until next time, I hope you take care of yourself and take care of each other. Aloha.